WTF Sharp is Kit Eason. He's a prolific author of talks, books, and videos on F Sharp and other topics. I've known Kit for a few years now. I've met him first, I think, at F Sharp Exchange a few years ago. It's been a pleasure knowing him, both uh, through Twitter, where he's tweeting lately about some art that we'll talk about later in this episode. Pleasure knowing him. I'm looking forward to talking to him today. The thing that kind of got me interested in speaking with Kit today was a new course he released on Udemy called F Sharp from the Ground Up. Today we'll go over both that course and other courses he's done in the past, the art that I mentioned, and we might jump around some other topics and maybe talk about his day job as well. How are you doing today, Kit? I'm doing great. Nice talking to you. Good. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about your background, just both in programming and other side hobbies, if you want to mention those, and then also specifically in F-Sharp? Absolutely, yes. I'm, uh, I always call myself a product of, the, of Britain's industrial strategy in the, like, the 1970s and early 80s where the aim of the game in those days was kind of to steer industry and to make sure the right things got invented and subsidised and the right skill sets were out there. And that's something that really went out of fashion with Margaret Thatcher. Um, Mm. But I slipped in just before she occurred. And one of the government initiatives back in those days was a thing called the BBC Micro, which was an early personal computer based on Mm -hmm. the 6502, Intel 6502. And it was built by the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, or kind of built in alliance with them, actually by the people who are now Acorn, basically produce a lot of the chips that go into mobile phones. And unlike a lot of these government things, it really worked well. And there's a whole generation of people my age who started off in computing with the BBC Micro. uh, So how do they incentivize that? How do they kind of push people towards that? Essentially by a series of programs called, you know, television programs back in the days of broadcast telly, which was called, as I recall, the Mighty Micro. And they just, you know, every week they, you know, program a little bit of graphics program or a, a Hello World program. And you could go in and, and do that on your on your own little BBC Micro. And it was quite a powerful beast for its time. You know, I, I knew people who were doing you know, quite serious industrial control and things with, with the BBC Micro. And really, I've not looked back since then, Uh, you know, as a lot of my cohort, people my age didn't do, you know, they, they, uh, they got into programming that way, and we've never looked back. Um, So yeah, that's how I started. So I would have been like 18 or 19. In those days, then I got recruited to do a lot of teaching adult education when I was at university in Bradford, which is a city in the north of England. They had, they'd set up a course, like an even, various evening classes for adults, underrepresented minorities, as we now describe them. And they'd done that without actually having instructors. So uh, as someone who knew a bit about computers, I got recruited to do that. So really, in a way, I started in teaching very early in my career. Well, and how, how long did you do that for? Well, uh, about four or five years, I guess. I did it, for a, I did it almost full time for an engineering company in Bradford manufacturer of auto parts and then I went off to be a a full-time support person at the University of Reading which is a town in southern England southern central England and there I was doing you know the standard university IT support things so installing computers putting in networks changing people's passwords that kind of thing then I moved from there to Lloyds Bank and that's really where I started in in programming because I kind of got headhunted within the bank to do a sequel Oracle, as it was then, Oracle SQL development, and I've had a bunch of jobs since then. Did front-end stuff for years, actually for 15 years, which I can hardly believe, in Delphi, which is an object Pascal environment, if people remember that. Uh, It's still out there. You can still get Delphi jobs, just. And I guess what I'm getting to, really, is that when C-sharp came along and C-sharp kind of took over the world, uh, you know, and, and Java as well, it, to me, didn't feel that different from Object Pascal. The main difference really being, you know, automatic memory management, which in Delphi at the time we didn't have. So, you know, you had to allocate an object, use it, and then free it explicitly in Delphi. C-sharp and Java, yes, they had that. But syntactically and kind of in terms of your design patterns that you would use, they were very similar. So I wasn't, like, super inspired by C-sharp. Did a bit of C-sharp for a, a pensions company in, in Rygate in Surrey, again, southern England. And that was all fine. But then someone, I just overheard someone, it's one of those like these fateful moments. I overheard someone saying, oh, we should do this in F sharp. Just like a tiny snippet of conversation. 
Sure. And what, what year was that? That that would have been about 2011, 2012. Very her- okay. pretty early pretty in the, early like, the, like the public uh, history of uh, mm-hmm. of F sharp. That that's certainly that conversation never went anywhere, and it was like only an overheard thing. But I thought, well, what is F sharp? So I I searched it. And it did seem a very good fit for the work, work we were doing at the time. In, in pensions, you, you're basically doing a lot of calculations. You're working out how long people are going to live, how much they've paid into their pension, how, how the pension fund investments are doing, all in an effort to make sure that the, you know, the value of the pension fund exceeds the, uh, the, the long-term liabilities owed to the pensioners. You know, and at the time, F-sharp was being touted as, a, as good for calculations, you know, as if any programming language isn't good for calculations. So it seemed a good fit to me. Uh, so I mentioned this to my boss. Hello, David, you're out there. No, no, no ill feelings. <laughs> uh, and he said, oh, oh, you don't want to bother with that. Uh, F-sharp's just Fortran for .NET. <laughs> what? Uh, okay. I think that was based on the F. And I thought that can't be true. And I had a bit more of a look into it. And, you know, clearly it isn't true. Although in a way, in a funny way, it does have a retro feeling that makes the older programmers like me very comfortable. Because, you know, there is a generation of people who remember the days before object orientation or object orientation. So we are actually much happier with a non-OO first setup than people who kind of, you know, did Java at university or something like that Mm -hmm. or C Sharp. So maybe it was a very good piece of reverse psychology on, on David's part, but I, I certainly looked into it a lot more and I started getting fairly convinced that for the kind of work we were doing, it was a good fit. Uh, and we had a new project on at the time, which was to do with calculating what's called experience, which is basically the gap between how, it's a bit grim, but how long you predict people are going to live uh, and how long they actually live, because if people start living longer than your assumptions lead you to believe, that means the pension fund will not have enough money. So we built this tool in F-sharp, and it was a, a big success. Uh, it's the kind of company where new graduates get recruited in a big cohort every year and like rotated through all the teams, and you know some of them would get rotated through our little F-sharp team. And they were always absolutely blown away by how productive our team was in comparison with the other development teams, uh, which mm. I, I thought was a, you know, a good sign. Because these are, these are smart people. These are what are called actuaries who are very mathematical. You know, I think there's only a few hundred, is there 600 qualified actuaries in the UK? It's like a protected designation, a bit like you know, architect or doctor. You can't call, it, call, call yourself it unless you've done the exams. So these these were smart people, and they were they were very impressed with what we were doing. You notice I'm carefully not naming this company <laughs> because you know there was a bit of a backlash. The trouble you get in larger corporates is you know they get the the de- demographics of the development teams can get a bit skewed. You you end up with people if the benefits are good in the company, you end up with no one leaving and everyone getting older. You know, and, and as a 57-year-old, you know, no, no, no disrespect to older people, but you really want in your development team a good range of ages because otherwise you will get yourself into a situation where everyone's counting the days till retirement. And what do people who are counting their days till retirement not want to do? They don't want to change anything. Um, <laughs> so, there, you know, there was a lot of pushback against what we were doing. Uh, I did eventually get frustrated and move on. But that was my kind of grounding in F-sharp. And that in a, it was, I think, a piece of reverse psychology and that, that made me very determined to succeed with F-sharp. And I've had a number of F-sharp jobs and, you know, based a lot even of my, my extracurricular activities around F-sharp ever since. Sure. Did they end up rewriting that F-sharp project or do you just not know the history of what happened? That's a that very point? astute question. I think that project has come to an end. The person I knew, or I still know, who was working on it isn't working mainly in, in F-sharp. You know, ju- just as a, as a measure of, you know, the, the differences in expectation, let's, let, 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 let me say that. Uh, there was another team doing what I don't consider to be a particularly big project in terms of, you know, the scope of the requirements. Uh, and that team had mm-hmm. 42 C-sharp programmers in it. You know, and that's an enormous amount. That's a big battleship to to steer. So I think probably that project isn't alive. It had a long, you know, after I left, it kept going for years. It wasn't like this situation which team leaders and engineering managers are very afraid of 
that you know the one guy or the one person who has pioneered this particular technology leaves and then you're completely stuffed because you can't maintain it it wasn't that situation there were two or three people who were more than capable of maintaining the code after i went but it just it, you know okay. that they didn't take the signal that maybe they should be doing other things in the same way and and, and saving money and you know moving quicker it it is an industry which because every pension scheme has to get itself what's called valued, in other words, have all these calculations done every three years, that doesn't make for an innovative industry because there's kind of a built-in income stream. They're not men, mm. There's not a great deal of cutthroat competition at the supply side, and so you can just let the money roll in every three years for your, for your valuation work, and again, that mitigates uh, against innovation. Hmm. That's really interesting. Back in 2011 or whenever it was that you learned F-Sharp, what resources were available? How did, how did people, I, I'm pretty lost on the history. I should probably get Don in and kind of go over history at some point. But uh, what did you use at that point? And, and also relevant to that, um, you mentioned being a little bit more comfortable with uh, F-Sharp than maybe some newer programmers now would be because of the Java background. What languages were you using before that kind of gave you that comfort? Was it ML or something in that space? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think, well, firstly, Don, Don, a, Don and the history of F-Sharp as a podcast would be, you know, the greatest tech podcast ever. <laughs> so let's make that happen. Um, sure. <laughs> in terms of what resources, well, I think F-Sharp first came out in, I think it was Visual Studio 2010, was it? Some, somewhere around there. So it's like a fully mm -hmm. supported first class project. And that was in the the pre-Roslyn days when mm -hmm. uh, it was simpler world and frankly things were a bit faster. <laughs> <laughs> there was a little bit online, there was Luca Bolognese's seminal talk at PDC 2008 where he kind of does a general introduction which is still worth looking at now but also at that, that point um, Expert F-Sharp had come out, the big fat book by Don, Simon, a number of other early f-sharp developers mm -hmm. uh, and that's a magisterial tome and that was really the thing it's not really in a sense it's not an easy beginner's book uh, but i took to it like a duck to water and that was really my main resource you know a little bit of googling you know blogs by people like phil trelford were, were useful microsoft blogs so i certainly didn't feel at the time like i was proceeding by guesswork there was even then enough published information out there to, to really mm -hmm. get started yeah it's funny the uh, the F expert f sharp book that that seems to always i think it'll always be in the kind of the top books within the f sharp world we uh we have an f a copy of the f sharp 3.0 book and i have all all the pages are creased yes. and used and written in and it's 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 the F sharp Bible in, in the house, and uh, now, we use it for. You're making me sad now because I think I, I lost my copy. I probably gave it to someone in, a, in an effort to uh, to bring them on board. Um. Uh, no. <laughs> no, so we, yeah, we have that F sharp three copy, and we also have an F sharp four copy. But I never end up using the four copy because my notes aren't in the margins, so I'm missing out on all the stuff I underlined and crossed out. Oh, and that's such. very interesting. <laughs> wow, what a what a what a seminal document! Like the family bible, it's the family bible of the Sashu <laughs> uh, uh, household. Brilliant. Sure. Uh, yeah so i mean to newcomers today if you if you're one of these people who's prepared to be overwhelmed and enjoy being overwhelmed <laughs> it's still a decent place to start if you're one of these i mean you know learning styles are a thing and i know there's some research to say they aren't a thing but i still think learning styles are a thing and some people mm -hmm. like to be like to understand every concept one at a time and don't like being overwhelmed and for those people yes um uh, expert f sharp isn't the way to go but if you if you enjoy to quote pink floyd the warm thrill of confusion then, then hmm. it is chris is it chris smith's animal guide which is out of print i think is is the one to go for if you like learning a bit more progressively uh, in my opinion but that that'll be quite out of date by now uh it's a lovely thin friendly informal book which I remember thinking, I think it came out after I'd learned F-Sharp. I remember thinking, well, this would have been good if it had come out in time for me. Now, going back to your question about um, what was my background, no, I didn't have any kind of ML, uh, ML in the sense of meta-language. Uh, I know CAMEL, not ML in the sense of machine learning, by the way. I didn't have an ML background at all. It was all Delphi and BASIC and that kind of thing. So in a way, I was learning it from scratch, uh, which is, by the way, the spirit I recommend everyone who, who's new to F-sharp taking it in. 
you know, pretend you don't know anything, forget all those, you know, design patterns and encapsulation and the, um, you know, the Liskov substitution principle and all that kind of interview Mm -hmm. stuff, forget all that and imagine it's your first language. Uh, If you take that attitude to it, I think that's probably the, the easiest way. And what I used to do, actually, the way I learned is I had a laptop. I would go into Rygate, where I was working at the time, lovely little market town in, in uh, Surrey or Sussex, can't remember what, southern England again, go in early and just sit in a coffee shop with uh, expert F-sharp uh, and laptop and a gigantic um, thing of hot chocolate and just, you know, work through a chapter. You know, and uh, it's quite low stakes. I think you can, if you if you have an aptitude for programming in general, I think you can be productive in a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks of an hour a day spent in that way. You know, it's not much more of an investment than that. Mm-hmm. So it's something you can try and throw away. Um, you probably won't throw it away, but it's 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 a low stakes thing. Hmm. Uh, being in that area, I have to imagine you had access to some locals who understood F-sharp, spoke F-sharp. Were there any kind of scene of people meeting up and talking functional programming those days? Yes, at the time, there was a wonderful organization called Skills Matter, which is now reincarnated. And they had a small conference space um, in London, uh, just outside the city of London. And there was a small community even then, uh, led at the time by Phil Trelford, a legendary F-sharp developer. And they would have meetups once a month on some topic. And I just loved the Skills Matter people. I loved that community. So even though I wasn't in the t- at the time working in London, I used to you know, commute up to London just in the evening two or three times a year uh, and go to one of the meetups. So actually Skills Matter, and you know, we're still friends with the Skills Matter people, and I know Don Simes as well. They were really instrumental in F-sharp taking off, certainly in the UK. So yes, there was a community. There wasn't anything... In my organisation, I headhunted someone into that pensions company who very rapidly became an F-sharp developer. And we had a guy over, a qualified actuary, who visited us from the German arm of the company who seemed to learn F-sharp in about five minutes. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we very quickly, and this, this is, you know, it's all about attitude, not aptitude. Uh, we very quickly, because those people had the right aptitude, we had uh, the right attitude, we pretty quickly had a, a viable team. You know, and just as an anecdote, this this German actuary, after we got him started with F-sharp and he did a bit of work for our team, he went back to Germany and replaced most of the functionality of their mainframe in F-sharp as a hobby. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> just, to, just to prove it could be done. Um, what a yeah, guy. Quite, what a guy. <laughs> So, yes, there was a distributed community. You had to go into London to really participate. But, you know, those were the days where you did wonder if it was going to be viable because we were quite Mm. thin on the ground. There weren't very many people. You know, I would probably know everyone in the community personally. Mm -hmm. If not physically in person, I would know at least their Twitter avatars and and (laughs) recognise them by their, their, their Twitter handles. Very different situation from now where, you know, it's a it's a pretty big community globally. Mm-hmm. I was surprised to hear Skills Matter. Uh, I've been to F-Sharp Exchanges where we met and that they're the organizer of that conference. It's uh, it's good to hear that they've been around for such a long time working in F-Sharp and that, that there was community for it back then. Absolutely. So yeah. did, did, you, did you have local developers? So, of course, you had to travel into London for the talks and such. Did you have any, uh, besides coworkers, were there any locals in your kind of southern central uh, London area or sorry central southern England area not really no and this is you know this is why it's certainly in those days you got a lot of pushback because people will say well will be will we be able to hire you know sure. and, and the truth is you probably won't be able to hire directly an experienced f-sharp developer you know I mean, and in my opinion you can retrain if you have the right attitude in you know a small mm-hmm. number of weeks of a small number of hours per day but Recruiters are so used to being able to dip into a pile of pre-experienced developers, uh, and that that pile, you know, even even nationally in the UK, didn't really exist. I think it's different now. I think you can hire. It's still not a commodity like C Sharp and Java are, but you know, as a supplier of services, as a, as a developer, who wants to be a commodity item? You want to be a premium item. So, I think that's a plus. I think the other thing on recruiting, and this is not a thought that's original to me, 
is that it's a great filter for people who actually care about their profession. If they if they care about you know .NET development, they probably will at least have heard or maybe even have looked into F Sharp. If they haven't at all, you'd want to ask yourself, well, what else have you been looking into? You know, are you do you mm-hmm. know a lot about the bar- the bowels of link or mm-hmm. optimization or something so you know do you care enough about your profession to have really delved into some part of it and if they've delved into f sharp that's one of the ways people can d- demonstrate a, a real commitment mm-hmm. so you started off with that you're in pensions and you kind of onboarded f sharp into the into the thing and you eventually left so what does that led you to now what are you using f sharp for these days where i'm now is a company called perpetuum so that's P-E-R-P-E-T-W-M. When, when I say W, I mean U-U. <laughs> Which we are in the railway sector, or the railroad sector. So we produce sensors that go onto trains, both you know locomotives and carriages. And those sensors are designed to tell you when one of the components is wearing out. So if a wheel is getting worn or if a bearing is getting worn or if a a gearbox is getting worn, we can look at the vibrations coming off that asset, as we call it. And by the magic of data science, we can tell you roughly, well, if it has worn out and it's getting dangerous or if it's about to wear out. And among many, many technologies in that pipeline is F-sharp. Interesting. So is most of your day job F-sharp or are there like several components that work together and F-sharp is, is one of them? My, yes, my primary development language is F-sharp. There are always yaks to be shaved and other things to be done and, you know, websites mm-hmm. to be developed and legacy JavaScript to be wrangled and all these kind of things and, and a fair bit of SQL in the mix, you know, and the usual kind of cloudy yak shaving, if I can use that phrase. But when I'm developing, I'm almost always developing an F-sharp, yes. Uh, that's not t- true of the team as a whole. We're quite a diverse team and it's data science heavy, so I, I don't need to give away any trade secrets to you know to tell you the kind of environments that, that data scientists like using. But that mm. said, all of our team is capable of knocking up F-sharp when they need to. How has the hiring been at, at this company? Well, I don't think we have ever gone to market primarily for an F-sharp developer. But on the other hand, when I got fed up with the job that I was in previously to Perpetuum, I was able to find this F-sharp job, and it was probably three or four hundred metres away from the last one, in Southampton. So that's outside London. So based on my experience, on average, there's about 300 metres between F-sharp jobs. So that's, that's a valid statistic, isn't it? So, so uh, yeah, we never, but then, you know, another person um, who's also experienced F-Sharp developer came, I didn't, I didn't, uh, for, 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 re- for legal reasons, I didn't headhunt him, but he did turn up. So that was too, you know, recruited locally. All the data scientists, well, they're bright people anyway, and we, we tend to hire for attitude. And, you know, they just learn F-Sharp really quickly. They look at the code base. We always buy them a copy of my book, <laughs> lucky them. Um, <laughs> You know, and they and they and they pick it up. It's it's certainly not going to be the hardest part of their day when you're trying to work out, you know, which gearbox uh, in a in a train trundling across Australia uh, is about to fail. When that's your day job, then learning F sharp is not going to be the hardest part of your day. Oh, that's fascinating. And you've been there for a few years. Been now? there for. I had to bring up my my resume for this. Been there since June 2017. So that's actually, by my standards, quite a long time. That is still yeah. <laughs> Usually, uh, two three years is kind of rate a lot of F sharp developers seem to go. Through. Yeah, I have a I have a, a shortish attention span, domain wise. But I have to say, um, this is absolutely the best job in my career. I've been working professionally, you know, in in IT various forms since the mid eighties, and this is by far the best job I've had. So I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, great to hear. If, if uh, your boss is here, yeah. <laughs> I'll make sure he does. <laughs> Cool. So you, you've you know, certainly learned F-sharp. You now do F-sharp as a day job. I know separately from that, you're also a pretty prolific teacher of F-sharp. You've given talks at different conferences and user groups. You've written books, not only Stylish F-sharp, which you've published a few years ago, but also previously under A-Press, I, I believe uh, there's a beginning F-sharp book, but also you've done video courses now on Udemy with F-sharp from the ground up. And previously, I know I've I've seen your videos on Pluralsight and maybe on lynda.com. How did you get into teaching? Obviously, you, you had a little bit of teaching on your early days of your career, but how did you get into teaching F-sharp 
And how's that journey been? Yes, uh, indeed. I have been teaching for a very long time. I quite enjoy it. I was kind of pitched into it as a, as a teenager, really, and didn't really know what I was talking about. So I've had a real baptism of fire. The modern age of my teaching really is down to, again, Phil Trelford, who, when we were working together in the city, uh, was offered a gig as a Pluralsight author. Pluralsight, for those of you who don't know, it is a really, really excellent sort of learning resource for developers. Mm-hmm. So Phil had been offered this gig and he didn't have time to do it. He was too busy uh, organising conferences. So he referred them to me and I said, well, this sounds potentially as if it could make a bit of money. So I mm-hmm. recorded a course for them. And I think I ended up doing three courses for Pluralsight. Uh, very hard work, I have to say. It's not an easy route to riches, but it's a great like side gig. If you've got a day job, it is something which you can do in the evening for a bit of extra cash and also to force yourself to keep your skills up to date because there's for skill acquisition, there's nothing like teaching. Agreed. So that was Pluralsight. How did your journey go from there to now Udemy? Well, did two or three courses for Pluralsight, quite hard work. Then I got recruited or like headhunted by one of my ex-editors on one of the books I did to do a bit of work for lynda.com, which in a way is very similar to Pluralsight. Mm-hmm. But the nice thing about lynda.com in a sense is that they fly you to California to record. You can record remotely, which is what I ended up doing for my later courses. But for my initial course, they flew me, hired me a big Jeep Grand Cherokee, put me in an enormous <laughs> hotel room for two or three absolutely frantic days of recording. And as I've, I've been to bits mm-hmm. of the States, never been to California. So that was a big selling point. And you can still find courses on, uh, I think there's a quick, an F-sharp quick start course. There's a course on testing with F-sharp, which is something that people want to know about. Uh, lynda.com, or as it now is, uh, LinkedIn Learning. Sure. Yeah, I actually got started with .NET in general with lynda.com. I think I watched... There's a treadmill. I put some some boards of wood kind of on the on the arms of the treadmill. I basically just watched lynda.com for hours all on the treadmill. Oh good. my goodness. Wow. Uh, and and ve- then later went on a plural site. Yeah, so yeah. I, I probably if those courses existed back then, I probably watched them. <laughs> uh, although I probably started with a C sharp, so maybe not quite yeah, yet. Yeah, poss- possibly not. Yeah. So yeah, so I did I did some um those Linda, those lynda.com courses uh first one in california the other two remotely mm-hmm. for, uh, i can't quite remember why i couldn't fly i think it was pre uh the the, the era of uh, the previous u.s president when it got was a bit more reluctant to fly to the u.s if you mm-hmm. knew that other people weren't even allowed to fly mm-hmm. <laughs> so i was i would have been reluctant but uh, actually i recorded remotely which is fine the trouble with both those gigs is you have a contract and you have a deadline. So that can be quite stressful when you're doing it, when you're doing it as a side gig because you feel like super under pressure. And they're, they're very understanding if you're running late. It's not like they're you know really hard taskmasters, but at the end of the day, it is a way to put yourself under pressure. And you and I both know for, for mental health, it's best to avoid that, especially with side gigs because you know, you know, day, day jobs are, are quite hard enough without putting yourself under pressure. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, Pluralsight in particular, financially, has been quite good to me. It's, you know, it's a non-trivial amount of cash. I couldn't kind of give up the day job, but it's been well worth doing over the years. And mm-hmm. actually those courses, particularly the Pluralsight ones, have been very long-lived. Uh, you know, they still, I still get a substantial royalty check every quarter mm. for courses that are five, six years old. But there is the deadlines issue and contracts issue. So I thought, well, I'll, I, I do want to do courses. And I think I, I think the... The community desperately needs more learning resources, more up-to-date learning resources. Let me try a, a model which is a bit more author-led. And that took me to Udemy. And with Udemy, there's no pitch to do. You don't have to have an idea and then see if you like it. As long as you, make, you know, meet the technical standards for recording, you can publish anything you like. And that, was much, that took away the whole contractual issue and the whole issue of having to pitch and maybe your ideas you know, just doesn't land and so you've wasted you know, putting the pitch together. And that's when I decided to do you know, F-sharp from the ground up with you know, basically no prerequisites at all. As long as you are, have some basic computer literacy, you know what a computer is, you know how to copy a file, you know in principle what a computer programming and coding are, 
then that's all you need to know. You don't need to know C-sharp, you don't need to know ML. It takes you through the whole process. And it, you know, there's no, it's all based on, on open source tools. So it's Visual Studio Code, Ironide, uh, and there's no mandatory cost to any of those. Then early last year, very fortuitously, I realised it's not lucky for most people, but I was put on furlough. So that meant I had time to uh, really record that course and do a th- what I think is a thorough job of it took me most of, you know, the best part of six to nine months uh, full time to write and record the course. So again, it's a, wow. it's a big undertaking. It's not, I would encourage people who are interested to have a go at course recording, because it, as I say, it's a great side gig. It's a great way of learning things, but it's not easy money. It takes, <laughs> uh, it takes a lot of effort to get things right. But anyway, that's out there. It's very successful, I think. Uh, I think we're at well over 50,000 minutes taught coming up for 500 students, 57 countries it's been purchased in. And it's taught us a lot about, you know, the F-sharp community in terms of who's learning it, where they're based. People used to think of it as very much a, a London and, and Microsoft HQ thing. But, you know, 57 countries, you can't argue with the stats. These are people wow. putting their hands in their pockets and actually spending cash, Mexican dollars or... South African rand and and, and they're, they're all they're all actually parting with money and watching the course in 57 countries so it's uh it's a really a global thing and there's a real real global community wow do, do you get much feedback from the the course and the the attendees or the the viewers or is it kind of you put the content out there and you see the metrics and that well it? the feedback i like is people sending money <laughs> um <laughs> the, 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 my second favorite form of feedback is, is reviews um so udemy has a review system the average rating i think at the moment is 4.77 stars uh, so that's pretty good mm-hmm. a few people are kind enough to put comments on the reviews and those are generally pretty positive and then there is a communication mechanism so people can contact me kind of through the platform if they have questions or comments. Not many people do that, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, most people are finishing the course. There's a low dropout rate and there are a few questions that get asked. But the lovely thing is, I think I've only had to answer one question myself. Everything else, one of the other students answers the question for me or they, are, you know, they work it out themselves and answer themselves. So by the time I've seen the question, quite often someone else has answered it, which is nice. Oh, that's great. So a lot of work up front to prepare and, and record and whatnot and edit. But after that point, it's a kind of hands-on. It is exactly that. Well, it's as hands-on as you want to be. I mean, you can like send announcements mm. if you want to. If you're very, very into community building, could make announcements and, you know, encourage mm-hmm. people more to get in contact, which I don't discourage. But most people seem to be happy to, you know, to take the info and run with it. And that's that's fine by me. Uh, so so this is uh, the intended audience here is pretty much computer literate, not necessarily programming background, not necessarily C-sharp background. Uh, how deep do you get into F-sharp? I know I actually bought the course and I, I watched it for a few minutes just to kind of get a feel for the style of the course and whatnot, but I didn't watch the whole thing. Of course, no. Uh, how deep do you get into it? Um, not super deep. We do the major collections, so lists and arrays. We do a little bit about result types and that kind of thing. Do we do result types? I better check I do. <laughs> We do uh, higher order functions like array.map and array.choose. I'm quite keen on, mm-hmm. on people knowing those because I think a lot of the power, like in everyday business programming of F-sharp, comes from you know effective use of those kind of functions. Yeah, the 80-20 rule applies to F-sharp very, very much so. It's really interesting, actually, because if you look, let's say, at the, you know, the, sorry, the F-sharp subreddit, you get people worrying about whether we should have so-called higher-kinded types in F-sharp or, you know, whether we should fill this or that, that kind of real corner case in domain modeling with some fancy-schmancy type. But actually, mm-hmm. that is, people shouldn't be put off by that kind of debate because I think it's, you're right, it's 80 20, but it's more like, like 98, 2% in terms of, you know, <laughs> where the benefits really lie. Again, for day to day programming, if you're writing like some kind of a parser for a quantum computer language or something like that, then sure, you're going to knock up against the limitations. But if you're wanting to, you know, parse a big bunch of XML and find which XML files are invalid, or if you're going to generate some bitmaps from some kind of data source, you don't need any of that stuff. You just need something with a kind of almost like a scripty feel that will get the job done. And that's where almost all for me, and I think for most people, that's where the benefits come. 
Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Just uh, just going from idea to pseudocode, right? Just kind of pipeline, pipeline, pipeline. I can kind of get my ideas out. Functions are simple. Most of the work is certainly done with just very few little helpers. Yeah, the benefits really are, I think you kind of hinted at it then, that the benefits are around the ability to reason about your code, which sounds like you know, a slightly abstract thing unless you've run against problems caused by not being able to reason about your code. But it's once you've kind of defined the, the concept which you want to express in your code base using things like you know, record types and discriminated unions, your program almost starts thinking for itself. That is to say, you built yourself in your type system a kind of mentor who knows about the domain you're talking about and will say to you, well, you said that X is going to be one of these two states, and now you're telling me that you want an instance of X that has this property that you didn't tell me was a possible property. What, you know, what are you doing? And it's quite, it's actually, unless you've experienced it, it's almost impossible to express, but it's quite spooky. It's as if Don Symes looking over your shoulder and saying, well, you know, your type system allows this state to occur, but you've not handled it in this piece, in this piece of your pipeline. I will give you a red squiggly. It's easy to get frustrated by that at first, but it's again, it's like a hard-nosed mentor. There's no getting around. You haven't handled that case, handle it. Change your model so that you explicitly express that case or change your logic so that that case is handled. And it's quite weird. And I had a really, really striking example of this. And here's where we take a, a, a real left turn, which is I've started to become interested in the mathematics of tartans. And what I mean by tartan for our for our American audience is what you might call plaid. In other words, you know, the, the, the pattern of fabric mm, plaid. Yeah, plaid. Sorry, I've, 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 mis, I've mispronounced <laughs> the misnomer incorrectly. Um, <laughs> so plaid, which is this kind of crisscross pattern you see on kilts and kind of traditionally like Scottish decorations. In a way, it's a bit of a Scottish cliche. Uh, also, in a way, you can argue it was essentially like a craze in the 18th and 19th centuries that only has a, like a, a passing acquaintance with actual Scottish culture. But if we take all that as red, it is a very interesting thing. Now, I'm no mathematician, so I'm, you know, none of this is going to be uh, inaccessible. But when you look into how plaid is generated, it's really, really interesting. And so I spent a happy Sunday morning like doing a domain model of plaid or a domain model of tartan, where I you know, looked at the, you know, the directions of the fibres. So you've got your warp, which is like your vertical threads, and your weft, which is your hmm. horizontal threads. And you've got some simple rules about what colours those threads are. And you've also got what's called the, the weave, which is, you know, do you just crisscross the threads one at a time, which is like, it's called a, uh, a simple weave, or you can have a thing called a twill, T-W-I-L-L, and all tartans are twills. And in a twill, a horizontal thread goes over two of the vertical threads, then under the next two, then over the next two, yeah? Mm. And your next horizontal thread, your next weft, is exactly the same, except indexed to the right by one. So it's going over the first thread, under the next two, over the next two, under the next two. You know, and the mm -hmm. next one is also indexed by one. So effectively the third one, if we're counting for one. I'm imagining this needle, by yeah, the way. I'm right. imagining yeah. this needle yeah. in the thread just yeah. kind of coursing through the Exactly. Fabric. So your first weft is over two, under two. Your second weft is over one, under two, over two, under two. Your third one is back to the same as your first one. And from those simple rules, you get some really beautiful patterns. So I spent, as I say, a happy Sunday morning domain modeling this. I ran my script and no word of a lie, although it's got, you know, bitmap generation and color mixing and 2D arrays, all that kind of stuff, all these things that you tend to, you know, get wrong. That script ran correctly first time and produced a valid tartan <laughs> very first time I ran it. Yeah, and that's the power of domain modeling. Doesn't always happen. Sometimes you may be two or three iterations before before your thing runs, but it's an immensely powerful, you know, mode of thinking. And the point I'm trying to get to is, I'd done all this and got terribly excited and started tweeting out random tartans and all these kind of things. And I was looking a little bit more into this thing called twill, which is, I say, just a weave, which is two up, two down. 
then index one to the right. And I was looking at the Wikipedia page for twill, and then I started looking at the Wikipedia page for a pattern called hound's tooth. So that's, that's dog tooth, hound's tooth, mm-hmm. which is like a traditional tweed pattern that, you know, gentlemen of a certain age, even older than me, would wear, you know, in a, in a jacket or a hat. And you can easily Google hound's tooth. And I thought, well, looking at the definition on Wikipedia of hound's tooth, mathematically to me, that looks like the same definition as tartan. But if you look at hound's tooth, it doesn't look like a tartan. Yes, it's a kind of a regular crisscross pattern, but it really doesn't have the flavour of tartan. So I thought the only way to test this, if I run my code for just two colours, um, quite wide bands of colours, what will I get? And I ran that and first time got a convincing hound's tooth. <laughs> so the, the interesting thing about this is I was able to reason in the language of my domain model to say, well, this ought to produce a hound's tooth, but I've got it's only the principles of the matter that are telling me this, then when I come to actually do it in practice, lo and behold, I get a perfect houndstooth. And it really is quite spooky. And that will, that's a silly example. You know, no one is going to pay you to, at least possibly not, no one's going to pay you to generate tartans or prove that houndstooths are really tartans or pads. Mm -hmm. But the same thing happens in the day job. You know, if you sufficiently model not not necessarily to the nth degree, but if you if you produce a model that captures the essentials of what you're doing in business terms, that model will tell you about the business things that you didn't know. Wow. You know and that's that is so spooky. Great. I I have two follow up questions about Tartan specifically. Uh, one of them is I'm just curious about what graphics uh, like library you used. Just literally a .NET bitmap. All I'm doing is the the calculations. Essentially, if you do it from like a from the point of view of an individual pixel in a bitmap, I'm mm-hmm. saying, well, given this so-called thread count, which is the spec, thread count is basically <laughs> the DSL of plaid. And it simply says something like black 8, yellow 16, uh, red 32, yellow 16. Mm-hmm. Literally, that is, that will, that's a complete spec of a tartan or a plaid. If you kind of parse that and look at it from the point of view of one pixel, you can tell what color that pixel should be. So all you really need to do is take a .NET bitmap and say set pixel XY color, having calculated the color from the essentially from the domain model. So no graphics library beyond system.drawing, mm-hmm. which happily is now a part of you know .NET Core mm-hmm. and .NET 5. So you know it's fully haven't tested it, but I'm pretty sure it's fully cross-platform. And the thing to say is that there's a script which which is all what I've just said. There'll be a link in the show notes, which is the script I wrote on that fateful Sunday morning, which completely domain models plaid. And then it calls that to generate the Malcolm Ancient Heavy Tartan, which is a traditional tartan, and a tartan I designed in honour of someone called Jackie Weaver, who's become a global internet sensation just based on the color scheme of her, you know, her background on her video call in the fateful video call that made her famous. Uh, I think there's one for the Wikipedia example of plaid and there's a, a random plaid generator as well. That's so you great. can, it, it literally, you run it, it'll produce endless randomly colored but valid plaids. Uh, so that if, if what I've said is a bit abstract, the, the code is out there online. That's great. Uh, I'm curious. I think if, especially if I'd had that experience like you had had, I would be very tempted to turn that into fashion in some sense, either, you know, some, some wall art or, you know, print my own hat with a certain plaid that I kind of generate. Has, has, have either of those topics kind of came to mind for you? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, you know, and I can talk on that topic for <laughs> probably as long as I've been talking uh, over again. Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, it certainly had crossed my mind. Almost the, as soon as I started tweeting out plaids uh, or tartans, I ended up in conversation with one of the um, Skills Matter people, Carla at Skills Matter. And she said, oh, my God, I'm going to print myself a hairband using this. So I said, well, you know, what are your favorite four colors? And we did her a, a tartan based on her four favorite colors. And uh, she's going to go out and print herself a hairband. The other answer to that is I had seriously considered doing this for another kind of um, style of art that I was producing which was based on building footprints you know open data sources of building footprints particularly in the UK and again if you color those randomly they produce great art and I actually did a conference talk 
where I produced a website that generated these and let you purchase printed versions of those. I was there. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't follow that through. Firstly, because I wasn't amazingly pleased with the quality that the printer was producing. Mm. There are services out there with APIs where you can call the API and send to a customer a piece of wall art or a mug or a handbag or something. Mm-hmm. But the one I selected, which had a good API, the quality of the products wasn't quite something I would want to put my Mm. name on also there's a lot of yak shaving to be done around privacy now i'm not i don't argue that privacy is is not a good thing but the the regulations were quite onerous and to get that right would have been a lot of work you know and it's always a bit scary when you're taking people's money through like your own your own payment logic so uh, i might revive it in the future but what i will be doing that there is a monetization project involving the plaid stuff in the works i won't say any more than that um, okay but it, yeah yes it has in, in terms of answering a question it ha- you could you can obviously you can take and print out and put anything like you like on your wall but i do have a little idea for generating a, a tiny rev- revenue stream from plaid generation and gotcha. that's that's not a sentence i ever thought i'd say <laughs> I, I i would like to see a picture of that hairband if possible uh, uh i'll reach just... out to carla and see if she actually went through with it yeah that'd be cool <laughs> And then besides that, I think even just setting up, you set up the script, like a generate desktop backgrounds for yourself. You could auto rotate desktop backgrounds with different plaid patterns with your favorite colors. Oh, yeah. There's, there's so there's much probably, you can do. There's yeah. probably a lot of options. Or on your background of your website, you could have the F sharp script compiled a fable and then, you know, have that draw the background in certain muted colors. I'm not, I'm not sure how, whether fable implements bitmap. Yeah, I mean, there'll be there's ways something. around that. You yeah, could S- you could absolutely SVG it. Um, so that there's ways mm. around that. And yes, I have a whole Google Docs document of ideas. <laughs> it's a matter of picking the right one. I think what I will do certainly as a because I want to sharpen up my Fable. I would definitely do a Fable-based website where you can type in a tartan thread count uh, and have it you know render that tartan. Um, oh, that'd be great. That that doesn't need to be monetized because that's a relatively useful learning exercise anyway and then that will link link into my monetization idea quite nicely so my iphone background is already the malcolm ancient heavy tartan as rendered by my tartan generator uh, and that's only the start (laughs) that's great i really appreciate when people kind of dive into side projects with a language they love for me that that's kind of how i learned programming i i had tasks in my mind that i i wanted to either solve for a number of people or just myself and I figured, hey, I can, you know, kind of study F-sharp while I'm doing it. Are there, are there any other things? Uh, you got maps, both building footprints. Uh, you got the tartan or, or plaid, as us ignorant Americans will call it. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been, been doing a lot of teaching. Are there any other kind of side projects that you've been playing with F-sharp? So many. I mean, they, I, I occasionally see tweets with people who, who try to express what they do with their, with their neglected side projects. Like, you know, they're like unwatered plants or they're, they're, they're hidden under the floorboards still mm-hmm. screaming. Uh, and there's a fairly substantial mortuary of, uh, of dead side projects that I've, I've done over the years. The, these are my obsessions at the moment. But I'm, it's got to the stage now where F-sharp is the way I think, where I, the way I reason about things. So if I want to kind of get myself clear on something that interests me, I will do it in F-sharp. Mm-hmm. That said, I, mean, yeah, I do have another obsession, which is um, uh, Fitbit watch faces, which mm. is almost entirely a non-F-sharp thing. And the way that started was my wife kindly gave me a, a Fitbit watch a few years ago. So when you say watch face, you mean like, uh, so you have the physical hardware device... And it's just a matter of like different applications that run on that or specifically like the default, just the watch part of it. Absolutely. Well, you can do either. So you've mm-hmm. got your, you've got your, you buy your Fitbit and you can pick a face, a watch face for your Fitbit from a gallery. And there's a bunch of free ones on there. Uh, and there's a few paid for ones as well. Uh, and there's, you know, ones that are produced by Fitbit themselves, but ones that are produced by third party that mm-hmm. are either super stylish or super quirky or, you know, relate to the time of year like Halloween or Christmas or something like that. And it turns out those are relatively easy to generate. And there's another side to it. Yes, yeah, so if you can think of an app idea, you know, to encourage people to exercise or some way to like leverage the the gps or whatever it might be mm-hmm. you can write an app that runs on your phone that talks to the fitbit a so-called companion app 
but my main obsession is is Fitbit watch faces because I may not particularly have an eye for it, but I do like designing physical things, and it's a nice way of designing something physical without making any mess. Yeah, physical uh, and something that's always on you. It's nice. Yeah, it's 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 very personal. It's very nice. I mean, mm-hmm. I, know, I know you're as as I am. You're into woodwork, but the trouble with woodwork is it makes a hell of a mess, <laughs> uh, and it takes a lot of space. Um, but it, this is a way of doing something creative that's not the day job. That's you know requires a bit of like artistic sensibility, but makes absolutely zero mess and costs nothing to do. And I would recommend anyone who's interested in in programming or wants a little side hobby in the programming space that's low pressure fitbit watch faces is a very nice experience to develop you do it in visual studio code uh, or there's an online environment which fitbit themselves provide you work in javascript which is why i'm saying it's almost no f sharp mm-hmm. so you, you've got a javascript for the logic you've got svg for the layout graphics and you've got um, css for the styling so it's actually quite a nice way in a way of learning a lot of web development again without all the hassle of having to mm. run a web server so you can you know you've got a fairly full implementation of css you've got a slightly archaic version of javascript and you've got svg in a slightly kind of specialized version for the watch face environment uh, and off you go and it's great fun hmm. yeah maybe maybe someone will hear this and uh, fabulize the uh, the javascript part of the fitbit experience <laughs> it did cross my mind uh, it, uh, i'm i'm not a languages guy so i'm not really the right person to be writing parsers and mm-hmm. and cross compilers and that kind of thing but it would be eminently doable um, and in fact you could produce a really beautiful experience because you could probably unify the css and the uh, svg and the javascript aspects so again you could reason directly about what you wanted to happen on the screen rather than having these three somewhat independent components that kind of if you name things exactly right kind of joggle together um Mm -hmm. so that would work well uh wouldn't be commercial i don't think um i have made a bit of money out of my out of the one fitbit face i have developed and there'll be a link on the on the podcast Mm -hmm. but we're not i mean we're not talking retirement money we're but we're talking you know buy yourself a few loaves of bread or a couple of cans of beer sure money um that said you know there's a there's a payment a third party payment provider that deals with all the payment aspects of it so it's quite low stakes uh, it's quite a nice experience um and i'm working on another watch face which i'm hoping is going to be a little bit more commercial all right well thank you so much for telling me about your fitbit watch face development i'm curious to look at that i appreciate your your background and your your side projects and 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 you know your adventures towards attempting to commercialize these as well it's awesome um one one other thing i want to talk about here is stylish f sharp it's a book you published uh, maybe two, three years ago under A-Press. On our bookshelf, I know a number of my coworkers are currently reading through it as well. It's a, it's a great book. It's a nice intermediate book. Can you tell us a little bit about a bit about that and your experience? Yes, thank you. Um, glad you enjoyed it. Yes, it was it was a result. Well, firstly, we're being approached by A-Press um, to do kind of something in that area. Um, mm-hmm. And the gap in the market did seem to be intermediate. So there is beginner material out there. And there's, you know, advanced material about monads and all this kind of stuff that uh, I, doesn't really float my boat. But in terms of doing F-sharp idiomatically and stylishly and efficiently, there wasn't much out there. So basically, I distilled my previous, I don't know, eight or nine years experience in developing F-sharp into a very loose style guide. Now, I will say there is an official style guide on the web, most of which I agree with, some of which I've kind of deviated from a bit in the book. But this is a style guide with a lot of commentary about, you know, why we do things a certain way, what's worked out for me, what hasn't worked out for me. Things like railway-oriented programming, which, you know, is somewhat controversial. Some people say, oh, well, you know, just use exceptions. My opinions on that are evolving the whole time. But there's a chapter in there that at least explains what going what's going on, because I actually found that surprisingly hard. The ROP, railway-oriented programming side of things, surprisingly hard to get my head around 
that was actually one of the cases where having a good domain model and a good kind of analogy in your head helped because I, I made up an analogy about a production line for the ROP chapter. So I chose not to talk in terms of railway lines, but production lines <laughs> with, with like machine tools on them that could either, you know, do an operation or read or, or reject the input value or the, you know, the input widget because it was already broken. And I, so I did that analogy for the chapter. Uh, but then I was slightly struggling with one aspect of the actual code for the chapter, but I was able to solve that problem by reasoning in the world of the analogy. Hmm. You know, if the machine tool has these characteristics, then what does that mean about the about, about the next uh, machine tool in the pipeline? So again, it's the pi- it's the power of the analogy. So anyway, Stylish F Sharp is a, is a book about F Sharp style. It assumes you know a certain amount of F Sharp, although I think personally the bar is pretty low i think yeah, if you've yeah, if you've done a little bit if you've written if you've you know been through some tutorials essentially then you probably won't be left out you certainly don't need to know any c sharp or any any dot net and as i say it's just a distillation of, of my experience of what kind of works out well and feels right and um, what pe- other people will like to work with in terms of you know looking after code and that's great yeah i, I found it uh, very easy to read it was nice. It's, it's a nice pace. Yeah, it's, it is. It is intentionally quite lightweight. And actually, my my one one star review on Amazon does say that it's, there's too little to it. And if I'd done it in a smaller font, then it would have been a very short book. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I love the large font. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I have to say, most of the, all the other reviews, I think, are five stars. So there we go. Um, but there's a an unfortunate trend in tech publishing that uh, that says that you need to have shelf presence mm-hmm. uh, to have shelf presence you need to have 900 pages you know i guess it's less important now books generally aren't on actual physical shelves so perhaps the shelf presence aspect of it matters less but yeah there are a lot of big books i mean without any without wanting to disrespect anybody i do remember c sharp in a nutshell <laughs> it was very far from being a nutshell unless it was like a coconut because uh, you know that was pushing a thousand pages so it's consciously quite a slim book and i actually don't think you need to lose much content in order to make a slim book for two reasons firstly you don't need to be enumerating in this day and age every single you know, like keyword or method call or api method or whatever it is because mm-hmm. that's reference information we do not need reference information in books in the 21st century because that stuff's all online Uh, and the second reason is because a lot of these you know books which seek to maximize their shelf presence you know their sheer fatness are full of a lot of waffle you know i remember Mm -hmm. reading one of the early books on dot net you know when people you know used to refer to it as a framework you know and the author spent several pages explaining the analogy mm-hmm. in terms of what a framework is in the real world. Well, I kind of know that. You could probably define that if you needed to in a couple of sentences or maybe a paragraph. And this was several pages waffling about what a framework was before then getting into, you know, in what sense was .NET a framework. You know, and I think people have a lot of problems coming to the point in writing. And you need to be aware of that as an author and just not do it. You can always put your points succinctly and in the modern age, there's no value in in making it longer than it needs to be. So if you found it was you know relatively succinct and to the point, that makes me a very happy man. Great, uh, yeah, I, I I love that that kind of style, and and also it's it's less uh, it's less daunting, right? I can if I if I hold a physical book when when I typically pick physical books, mm. if I hold a physical book with reasonable font that I don't have to squint at, and I can hold it in one hand and I have to kind of drag it along the floor like some thicker mm. books. It, it's it's less daunting. It's a book that I'm actually going to be able to finish, and uh, and that that's that's one big aspect for me for technical books that I get annoyed by, and also the redundancies. When I go through a tech book, I I have a uh, you know a sharpie, and if there there's a paragraph that was entirely useless, I get rid of it. So if I read it a second time, I no longer read that paragraph. That's um, very interesting. <laughs> if I ever do a next edition, we'll we'll have you in as the tech reviewer then, because it sounds like a, a born editor. Definitely be up for that. Cool. Uh, well, but, ah, yeah, there we are. But actually, as it happens, um, I have received uh, overtures from A Press to do a new edition of Slash F Sharp. I was in two minds. I still am in two minds because there are aspects of that which are quite hard work. Uh, I'll, I'll be sure to to involve you with you know no compulsion 
in in reviewing a future edition because we have F sharp five now. Things have changed since F since since the, the previous edition. There are new features. Some of my thinking about what I've said in the original stylish F sharp has changed. I've changed mm. my mind not about many things, but one or two things. There are some mistakes in there as well. So you know, I'm minded to do a new edition. So. Probably this weekend I'll reply to the editor and say, "Yeah, we're on. Let's let's pitch a new edition." And that's great. Uh, just out of curiosity, is there any content that you're thinking about adding? Any kind of chapters that uh, you were tempted to do the first time around but didn't get around to or didn't want to use the space for? Haven't thought a lot about that actually. I've, mm-hmm. I've put that into my to-do list because the editor wants me to kind of pitch the new book, and at that point I will have a look at what's new in F Sharp Five. Which, by the way, I've been quite lazy about leveraging. <laughs> been quite lazy about looking at what's new. That will force me to look at what's changed. I'll go back. I keep a GitHub repository of mistakes and things I've changed my mind about in the original edition, and I'll combine those two. You know, the new features, the uh, errata in the old book, into a pitch. And at that point, I'll I'll be able to answer your question. That's great. Yeah, in, in my mind, this this book was was great. It's, it kind of instantly became one of the the greats in F sharp uh, in terms of books. The the other ones being for me personally, Expert F sharp will always be kind of my F sharp bible. I'm kind of still waiting for an F sharp 5.0 book. We'll see if we'll see if the A press gang gets around to that. Isaac Abraham's book Get Program with F sharp has always been a great kind of introductory book, and this this kind of fits in with that. My personal top three of programming books, it's how I typically read or learn best. Um, just out of curiosity, and I, I asked this before for the audience's sake, but if you had to put an F-sharp newbie with five books and, uh, and lock them in a room for a few weeks, <laughs> what would be the books in what order? Well, let's hope they get locked into a nice coffee shop. Like yeah, I a nice did, coffee that's, shop. That's the, it's not great for the waistline, I have to say. You know, <laughs> too many cho- hot chocolates and muffins. But uh, yeah, I suppose I've, this is no particular order. Um, but mm-hmm. I would I would obviously put stylish F sharp in there, uh, expert F sharp, uh, get program with F sharp. You mentioned domain modeling made functional by Scott Vlaskin mm-hmm. is that is considered a real real major classic. You know that that's the one that really changes people's worldview, uh, and he's such a great great writer and great presenter. Uh, the other one I put in there is a, is one called The Elmish Book by Zyda mm. Jarge, which I have to say I haven't fully read yet, but it's about Elmish and the kind of this model which allows you to write F-sharp for the front end and back end of a website using the Fable uh, transpiler and a bunch of other technologies. That is such a beautifully read, a written book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zyda is just a really good writer and he's a writer in the style we've just been talking about where there's no fluff. It's like cold, clear water. You just get the info you want. He's a really, really good technical writer. So there we've got, got five real classics. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't, want to, I don't want people to feel overwhelmed. You know, any one of those, I mean, some of them aren't really beginner's books, but if you yeah. read any one of those, you would have got such a long way in your journey to being able to be productive. Uh, You don't have to have mastered all those techniques, not by a million miles. I'm a pretty average developer in terms of productivity, but I was productive within, you know, two or three weeks of starting to read uh, Expert F-Sharp 4 without any of the others, most of which, in fact, none of which even existed. Um, So though those are five great books, don't feel you have to master them all. Sure. And if you're out in the books, we got video content. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Ground up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. That's great. Well, I'm looking forward to email response to the editor and hopefully helping with that. Great. So so a final thing I want to do is uh, you mentioned that there's a possible competition related to Tartan. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So I thought we'd do a little competition to kind of co-brand uh, WTF Sharp <laughs> uh, uh, and, you know, my courses and things uh, and my obsessions. So we're going to do a little competition. And the prize is going to be free codes for viewing the course F-sharp from the ground up. So I'll give you like a, a magic code and you'll be able to log on to you to be in, and view the whole course free. If you're already an F-sharp developer uh, and you feel that that course would be too elementary for you, you'd be very uh, welcome to pass that code on to someone on your team or someone you know who you think would benefit and people often do that actually people sometimes have been buying that course as a gift for other people because i can see that going i can see the transactions going through and it says you know purchase his mm-hmm. gift which is rather sweet so anyway enter this competition we'll give you a free code to view that course which you can pass on 
Uh, so we're going to do a question uh, or like a little challenge uh, and the best three answers to that challenge will get a free code. And the challenge is, I've written this tartanizer script which generates a plaid or tartan pattern given like a thread count for the tartan. If you haven't fully taken in what I mean by thread count, you can actually read the script and you'll see what I mean. So what I'd like you to do is download the script and run it. You can just run it in F Sharp Interactive and get to know how it works. Then I'd like you to design your own plaid, your own tartan, uh, which you can do just in terms of a thread count, run the script and it'll generate a bitmap for you. Send us that bitmap uh, and the, the, the ones we like, uh, the top three that we like the most, you'll get a code uh, for the Udemy course. And obviously you're subject to the whims of our taste. There's no, there's no right or wrong answer, but uh, Sasha and I will, will convene and we'll pick our, the, the tartans we like most and we'll give you the prize. That sounds good. Uh, so yeah, uh, I guess to enter, if you tweet at both of us, I'm Stasher.net and he is Kit Loves F Sharp. That's yep. K-I-T-L-O-V-E-S-F-S-H-A-R-P. Or if you're not, you can email them. Are you comfortable them emailing to, them to you? Yeah, that's that's fine. That's that'll be kit at kiteason.com. So that's K-I-T-E-A-S-O-N for November.com. Great. So we'll we'll get those out. We'll get that competition started. I'll probably have this episode edited sometime tomorrow. So we'll be able to maybe start the competition tomorrow, which is February 7th. So how long do you want to give them? Let's give them two weeks. Let's give them two weeks. Great. So up to the 21st, tweet or email us. And uh, we'll pick all the top three then and get some free codes out. That sounds Great. like a fun competition. Uh, well, where can listeners find you? Besides, uh, besides to tweet at you to get a free code, uh, I'm sure some people might have you for wanting to contact you for other things. I know you have a Twitter. Yeah, I have a Twitter. Uh, you can find me at GitHub as Mr. Speedy, M-I-S-T-E-R-S-P-E-E-D-Y. That was a nickname bestowed on one of my training buddies when I was training for a triathlon a few years ago. Hmm. Um, it, it was intentionally ironic. <laughs> you could even, if you're very curious, you could find me on LinkedIn just as my name. I don't think there's more than one Kit Eason in the world. Or I have a blog, kiteason.hashnode.dev. Um, and I've done a fairly recent blog post on there about uh, the numbers that we can like derive about the f-sharp beginner community from the sales stats from the udemy course so i talk a bit about you know what languages do people also express an interest in where do people come from that kind of thing that sounds great so so what do you think is next talking about this a press book the second edition of stylish f-sharp uh, maybe thinking about something else as well yeah, I think I probably will do another Udemy course because the first one was, was very well received. Uh, and I'm thinking quite hard about what that topic should be. A lot of people have asked for something about testing and F-sharp. Mm. I would very much like to do a course which covers all the collection functions because by a happy coincidence, if, we, if you look through the F-sharp documentation, there are exactly 100 collection functions. You know, I'm talking about map and choose and find uh, and select. Uh, and there are a hundred of them. So in completest fashion, I'd quite like to do a course which explains every single one of those. That would be a possibility. Another one which my wife is lobbying for is what you might call Stylish F-Sharp Live, uh, where I do like a video version of the book. All of those, I think, would make a viable course. I'm doing a bit of deep breathing first, though, because it's a big commitment. You know, it, yeah. it, the, the collections one would be colossal. Even the other two to, to do viably would be, you know, six or nine months of quite long evenings. So I need to think carefully. But I think that would be my next major project. That sounds great. Well, looking forward to whatever you put out. Thank you. Great. It was, it was great talking to you today. I'm looking forward to running this uh, Tartanizer script challenge and uh, following up with that and picking the top three with you. Hopefully we have you on again someday, but looking forward to more and more that you produce. Thank you, Stashu. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed reconnecting with you, actually, because we've not talked in a while. Mm -hmm. um, and here's to something else working together.